I just felt, feel led to thank our worship team this morning. It's not just because Logan's parents are here that I'm thanking Logan, but I, just appreciating the, the, our musicians, the, the skill, the gifts that God's given them, and, and also the times where they, they pull back a little bit, not just for effect, uh, but hearing the voices, hearing you sing. I love that too. Uh, some churches you go to, the music is so loud you can't hear yourself or anybody else. The, the most important, I know Logan believes this, uh, agrees with me in this, that the, that the most important uh, instrument, I mean, we see the instruments in the Bible, there's, and they're loud in the Psalms, loud, loud instruments, but the most important instrument of praise is God's people, and that's, uh, that's wonderful to hear you singing together, and uh, I'm encouraged by that. Hope you are as well. Romans 8 is where we are this morning, as where we're continuing, going through Paul's letter to the Romans, the believers uh, in Rome, and we're coming to the end of chapter 8. Hope you'll have your Bibles open there with me, and if you want to have the outline that's on the back of the worship folder there, that may help you follow along also. Those who study the the history of the the Word of Faith movement uh, trace many of the teachings back to an early 20th century pastor named E.W. Kenyon. Maybe you've never heard of him before. I I wasn't familiar with his name. Uh, But he was the one who coined the phrase, what I confess, I possess, which may be more familiar to you as name it and claim it theology. What I confess, what I speak, I possess. Name it. Now, Kenyon was influenced by early versions of, of positive thinking. Um, he told Christians to avoid words, avoid ideas that create sickness and poverty in your life. Instead, they should repeat things like, and this is a quote, uh, God is in me. God's ability is mine. God's strength is mine. God's health is mine. His success is mine. I am a winner. I am a conqueror. Now, that sounds a lot like Romans 8. I mean, Romans 8, 11, we looked at a couple weeks ago, his, uh, the, the, the one who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And that maybe even more familiar, that, that link is that I am a conqueror surely comes from 837. It's in our text today. But the most deceptive, and, and I'll say this, most deceptive lies have some truth mixed in. You see, not, not everything taken from the Bible is actually biblical, that is, faithful to what the Bible actually means. And here's why I say that there's something of a lie there in, in the particular movement that I was describing. Uh, the, not everything, well, excuse me, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to um, the Christians in Rome, does not give us a technique of positive thinking to tell us to, to think, to speak into existence a new reality in order to avoid suffering. In fact, he tells us in this chapter that we are to expect suffering in this life, but here's the thing, and to expect, that this is hope, the expectation, and to expect an even greater glory, to expect real suffering in this life, and to expect an even greater glory in the life to come. And that gives us the expectation, the hope today found in the God who is with us, who is, yes, in us, who, yes, gives us strength, who, yes, gives us the victory, who makes us conquer. He is with us. He is in us. He is for us. 
there's, there's truth here that we need. So yes, how you think, what you believe matters. That's why Paul is writing this letter to them, to us. That's why we need to read it, why we need to absorb it, grab on, take hold of it. Here's the, here's the way I'm summarizing the sermon this morning. The clearer you are on all the ways that God is for you, the more confident you will be when everything seems against you. Folks, this is huge. The clearer you are on all the ways that God is for you, the more confident you will be when everything seems against you. That's the message. Here's our passage. It's Romans 8, 28 to 39. I'm going to back up as I've been doing, starting to read from verse uh, 16 today. Let's start from there. Verse 16 on through the end of the chapter. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And you could expect him to go, like, we're children, we're heirs. Just, it's just blessing. It's just blessing after blessing. He's going to take care of us. He's going to love us. He's going to lavish all this good stuff on us. We're heirs. We're in, we inherit all the kingdom. But he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the glory is coming. Oh, yeah, it's, that's part of the picture. It's part of the promise but suffering before glory. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us yet in the future. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this, this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose." For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. That's right. All right, now I'm going to use that line from verse 31 uh, as a framework for the sermon. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Two parts under if God is for us and three parts under who can be against us. So, number one, if God is for us, He will not fail to accomplish His eternal purpose in making us like His Son. So, verse 31, again, this is kind of the framework. What shall we, what shall we then say to these things? So, what conclusion should you and I draw from what, all that Paul has been saying. And, and some of scholars are wondering, like, is he talking like back ch- whole chapters of all that he's been saying up to this point? Maybe, uh, but at least, certainly, the previous few verses. So even though we looked at verses 28 through 30 last week, we're returning there. These things, these are the things that are, understand, evidence that God is indeed for us. When he says, well, if God is for us, it's not a... Well, no, it, if, if that's the case, if that's true then we can have the confidence that uh, proceeds from that. So, this is evidence that God is indeed for us. If we know, and we know, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, these verses are some of the most cherished and uh, debated in Scripture. They, They are precious because when things look bad, really bad, when the outcome seems bleak, knowing that all things work together for good, that gives you hope. Somehow, all things work together for good? No, God's how. God is how all things work together for good. But here's where you get more of the controversy. Does God so orchestrate, so control in his foreknowing and predestining that we end up with a kind of fatalism, determinism, whatever will be, will be, or it is what it is. I mean, or, you know, he's, he's, he's controlling, he's, what's going to happen is going to happen. We're just sort of either pre-programmed robots or just puppets pulling, uh, he's pulling the strings. Uh, So some people then will interpret, understand, foreknowledge is God knows in advance what we would do, and then he plans our future based on our decisions. That, of course, is more emphasis on uh, the, the free will of human beings. But the question here is that I want to have you see is, is that give us, A, does that give us the hope that, that Paul wants us to have? And, and is a stronger view of God's sovereignty, his meaning his higher authority, is that a dehumanizing thing? 
Clearly, Paul expects us again to, to us, these words to give us hope and to not give up when we know this about God. So take a moment and think about what frustrates you about uh, bureaucracy, whether in, the, whether in the government, you know, the DMV, the IRS, or just some big company like Comcast that maybe you have to deal with every so often. So often, if you, it feels like you're being treated like a number, um, you're just cattle being herded through the maze, um, you're... you're, you're just being forced through the system without any regard for you as a person, your real needs, uh, pointless questions, pre-programmed agenda, cookie-cutter solutions. It's frustrating. It's dehumanizing. You might be tempted to think that God in His sovereignty works like that. Now, now get this. I, need, I do need to say this. God's purpose is His purpose. Uh, we, we, do need to, we do need to come to grips that with as as what I'm about to say, that he is personal and relational and he's got a good plan and purpose for you. It is his purpose. He is not there, out there, um, waiting to see what you would like to do with your life and how can I come alongside and help you to do what you want to do with your life. He has his purpose for you that he is working out. We do need to humble ourselves and recognize that this world is his, we are his, we do not set our own agendas, but But please get this, God's plan is not dehumanizing, impersonal, degrading, soul-killing. If you would like to talk to an operator, please press, uh, you get five steps down, well, call this number instead. No. His plan is personal, it is relational, and it is restorative. Foreknowledge is not about knowing information about you. It's about knowing you personally, intimately. This is what God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Do you hear foreknowledge in there? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is more than knowing in advance what Jeremiah would do with his free will. This is, this is the one who created you, formed you, made you to be exactly who you are for the purpose that he created you to fulfill. He knows the plan he has for your life and what is his plan and what is his purpose for not just your particular personalized plan, but what is the plan and purpose here for all believers? Verse 29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that, further reason, that he might be the Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's the plan. That's the purpose. This is where God wants you to be. This is where he is leading you, where he is taking you to be like Jesus, who takes after his heavenly father. Like Jesus, we are called sons and heirs and servants and kings to be with him so that he is the firstborn among many brothers. This is just like the way last week we saw him refer to earlier in the passage uh, refer to the Spirit as the firstfruits. Jesus is the firstborn. Remember we said the firstfruits is the, just the beginning of the greater harvest that's yet to come, the greater bounty. Our experience of the Spirit is just the, just the first taste of the life that God wants to give us. Here, Jesus as the firstborn does not mean that he didn't exist and then 
then he was born and he existed. He is the eternal Son of God. He's the firstborn specifically in this sense. Jesus, the one and only eternal Son of God, is firstborn in the sense that he is just the beginning of a much greater family that God has planned for you and I as believers to be a part of. We all get to be in on it. That's, folks, that's a, a blessing. We talked about being adopted into God's family. This is, this is the blessing of fellowship, of belonging. And if God's purpose for us is in, in becoming, our becoming more like Christ, then we can see how he can make all things work together for good. Does that make sense? If that, you keep those things linked together, of course, his blessings, his gifts, his favor are good. No, no problem there. But even trials, even pain, even staring death in the face with a brain tumor or the like, staring death in the face can work together for good because what's his purpose? He's making you more like Christ. He's not just trying to keep you alive. He's not just trying to give you a blessed life. He's trying to make you more like Jesus and to enjoy everything that it means to be like him and with him within God's family. There is a God who is working out his purpose. So, if, if I could just change the whole picture, the, the concerns, if, if we're worried about uh, God's control, God's sovereignty, God's plan and purpose, his predestination as something of a, a determinism or fatalism, well, I hope we're also worried about the opposite. If no one's in control... And if anything can happen, we have no hope and no guarantee that things will work together for good. We have no hope. But brothers and sisters, take heart in your suffering. In your suffering, we do not live in a universe that is impersonal, deterministic, fatalistic, bureaucratic. We're not in that universe, and nor are we in the universe that is sheer anarchy, chaos, and chance. No. We live in God's world, a personal loving God who is working out His eternal purpose in all things, His eternal purpose that existed in eternity past and extends to eternity future. His knowledge is not, His foreknowledge is not like a crystal ball. It is an anticipated relationship. Before I formed you, I knew you. Predestination is not pulling the strings. It is God accomplishing his good purpose in your life. And it centers on our oneness with Christ in God's family where there is room for you. That's where he wants you to be. Back to the text, verses th- verse 31. So coming out of, again, coming out of all these things of God's purpose, working things out for good, his purpose to make us like Christ, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh, that's, that's a verse you need to memorize, folks, right? Verse 32. This is part two. If God is for us, he gave his son to save us, so he is sure to give us all he has promised. Bible scholars describe this kind of uh, logic, this reasoning, as, as going from the greater to the lesser, arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God would, in other words, if God would do the, the bigger 
uh, harder, costlier thing, that the greater, then surely he will do the lesser. Surely he will do everything else, the, the smaller, the easier thing. Now, I don't know about you, but graciously give us all things doesn't sound lesser, much, much lesser to me. Now, let's, let's take a moment then to appreciate how much greater the great thing is that he does. The father did not spare his own son. You got to see that as like, that's, that's huge. What is more precious to the father than the son? Who of us could imagine uh, being Abraham in Genesis 22, willing to sacrifice his own beloved son, Isaac? Willing to sacrifice, but if you know the story, he didn't have to in the end. But our Heavenly Father is the Father who really did sacrifice His Son. He really did put His Son on the altar, who willingly was bound and gave His life. The Father did that, as, as Logan uh, mentioned earlier, not because he was sacrificing his son, not because he was sadistic, bloodthirsty person, but, but because he was willing to do anything, to give everything in order to save us. God did not spare his own son. He did not say, okay, I, I know we've got a, a mess down here on earth and we've got to do something to fix it. We've got to save them somehow. I, I'm, I'm willing to do just about anything just not my son. He didn't say that. that my son, that's, that's asking too much. No, he gave him up for us all, and Christ himself was willing to be that sacrifice. And so we understand when it says he gave him up for us all, it's referring here to Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. But I wonder if it reminds you of something else, and maybe I can help connect a couple of dots for you. I know Romans chapter 1 it was a long time ago in this series, back in January uh, in Romans chapter 1. But do you remember how Paul said, Romans 1, humankind had exchanged the glory of God for images and idols. They had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so what did God do? God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. All phrases from Romans 1. What a, what a horrifying thought that God would give, would just hand people over to their sin. That he would just let them go headlong into their self-destructive wickedness. But what did he do? He gave them up to their sin. But then he gave up his son. Same, same word. He, he gave him up. He, he handed him over. He, he let him go to the cross. He let wicked people do their worst to him. He gave up his only son humankind was given over to their sin. Jesus Christ was given over for our sin to save all who would trust in him. That's, that's beautiful, powerful stuff. But here, here again, I need to put some guardrails on this verse, verse 32. If you rip this verse out of context, you can make it say something like this. Well, if God gave us his son, surely he'll give us what, all, all things. Surely he'll give us everything else we want. All things must include a nice car and a, a, a good a, a new car, a new car, a bigger house, a trophy wife, a, a better husband, my, my kids all having good grades, uh, getting good jobs. Surely God will give us a, a nice vacation and a and a comfortable retirement. He he gave us His Son. He'll give us all things, all the things we want. 
you got to read this verse within the larger point that he's making. The sufferings of this present time, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. So the all things that he's talking about that he's given us his son, surely he'll give us all things. The all things he's talking about in verse 32 are not the American dream. It's the kingdom of God that is yet to come. All things that includes the whole creation, a world without sorrow, without pain, the life that we can only imagine of, Eden, except even better. That's what he's promised to us. That's the all things that he is sure to give us even where we sit now in a time of present suffering. That's what we can take to the bank here with verse 32. You need this verse. Just don't, just don't make it a blank check for God to give you whatever you want. Those all things, the kingdom of God, life in a restored creation like we've never known, that is, these things are sure to come. You need to know that, especially as you go through hard times now. How do you know? How do you know that that's sure to come? Well, this verse says, by knowing what kind of father we have. How do we know what kind of father we have? Well, we, we, how did he treat his son? Now, here, here, he's a father that will not spare his own children from suffering. That's the hard part. Your father will not spare you, spare his children from suffering, but more importantly, he is a father who would spare no expense, will hold nothing back from you. He would not hold back his son. Having given us his son, he will, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Is God for us? Yes. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Three more points and they're going to be shorter. Part three. Who can be against us? No one can condemn us since Christ has borne our condemnation. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, I I believe we can make good use of these verses, both in a sense of internal condemnation and external condemnation. What do I mean by that? Well, let me me explain. Uh, Some of us uh, go through our lives with a a constant nagging sense of internal condemnation. That just might be your conscience. It might be, uh, frankly, it might be the devil, Satan, whose name means accuser, just coming at you, like just poking, just poking you at your weak spots and pointing out your failures. That's what I'm calling this internal condemnation. Martin Luther, the, the Protestant reformer, so I'm going back to the 1500s uh, here, Martin Luther wrote a letter to a friend who was struggling with spiritual despair, giving counsel, and this counsel is still good for you and me today. Martin Luther says, When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. We ought ought to talk back to him and say, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. 
For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Yeah, you, you, just, you just talk back to that internal condemnation. You, we have the answer to the condemnation. Jesus bore our condemnation for us. Your sins don't stand against you anymore when you are in Christ. So you can talk back to Satan, to that accuser. He's got nothing on you anymore if you're in Jesus. But I think this passage here has even more to do with external condemnation. Opposition and oppression of persecution. Who shall bring any charge to God's elect? Who is to condemn? This is in the realm of legal accusation in an attempt to defame and discredit. And you might think, well, okay, Bruce, I'm... I'm, I'm reading the passage here, and it sounds to me like Paul is talking about final judgment because his answer is, it is God who justifies. That was the earlier theme that we had so many chapters over, right? Through, through Christ, by grace, God gives us, gives us sinners who have no righteous standing. He gives us as a gift righteous standing so that we might stand before the final judgment and, and be welcomed into glory when we should have been condemned, right? That's the earlier theme. So, well, that must be what he's talking about. It is God who justifies. I actually think, though, it is the juxtaposition of earthly condemnation and heavenly judgment that really gives this its power. I think it'll be clear as we go, as we go forward. So, some, to give you an example, um, this is not just a, you know, made-up illustration. This is real history. Some of the early Christians in the time of the Roman Empire were falsely accused of incest and cannibalism. Can you believe that? Uh, the, 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 the good church people accused of uh, incest and cannibalism, incest because they all referred to each other as brother and sister, and they professed love for one another, and even, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss. You've, you know, you heard that in the Bible. And so, like, these people are, there's some kind of weird commune thing going on. Um, they're also accused of cannibalism because they were known for this ceremony where they talked about consuming the body and the blood of Jesus. I mean, that, you know, at, at the Lord's Supper. Now, obviously, those were either gross misunderstandings or a deliberate misleading, a deliberate twisting, so as to make life hard on Christians to intimidate them or to eliminate them. And it's not hard, folks. It's not hard to make a jump. I, I, I don't think we're going to be accused of incest or cannibalism, uh, but it's not hard to imagine Christians in our day being accused of child abuse for disciplining their children or for failing to affirm their chosen gender identity. So imagine, it's not hard, imagine being put on trial, being accused, being condemned, being incarcerated, separated, present suffering that makes future glory seem all the more remote. You're not out there saying hashtag blessed. I'm like, what? Where, where is the love of God in my life? Where is his care? Where is God's purpose being work, worked out in, in these things? And Paul is saying, but remember, if God is for you, who can be against you? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? If you've been called according to his purpose, foreknown, predestined, do you think anybody can take you off that track? Do you think anyone can disqualify you? Who can bring any charge against you in earthly court that will stick, that will finally condemn you when you have been justified by God at the heavenly judgment seat? It doesn't matter. All the stuff they can do to you here doesn't matter in eternity. 
Who can condemn you when Christ has already been condemned for you? He's the one who died. More than that, was raised. He's been condemned and vindicated in, in his death and resurrection in the only court that matters. He, and like the Spirit earlier, intercedes for us before the only judge that matters. Folks, we, we may need to know this, not simply to be secure in our justification uh, in eternity, that, that one day in the future where we will stand before the judge. We need to know this so that we are secure in our present suffering, so that we will not be afraid of any other judge, jury, or executioner. And I think that interpretation is borne out as we continue reading. 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Part four here. Second point under, who can be against us? No one can conquer us since Christ has died and conquered death for us. Now, we need to feel the weight of this. When I say that, I'm not talking simply about the the scariness of persecution uh, or the fear of the poverty that may come when you may be forced out of a job. The weight I'm talking about is coming in that moment where in your suffering, in present suffering, you wonder, Maybe this is, maybe this is all, a, my faith was all a big mistake. Maybe this, none of this is true. Maybe God has abandoned me. Maybe he's not there to help me. How can God be for us if everything is against us? How can we keep believing that he loves us, that he will one day bring us into his kingdom and us to glory in that kingdom? Would we be able to believe it if we were Cornerstone Church in Ames, Iowa, who had two young women shot and killed in the parking lot 10 days ago. Or the Catholic Church in Owo, Nigeria, who last, where last Sunday, 70 were gunned down by terrorists that were likely uh, a Muslim group. What if we face the danger and the sword of an active shooter or a violent, brutal dictator? Well, wouldn't be the first time that Christians have died. Paul quotes Psalm 44, verse 22 here in 836. That quotation probably indented in your Bible. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the, this is the lament. This is the complaint of one of God's people. God, we're, I'm, I'm looking to you and we're dying down here. We're getting killed. We're getting slaughtered down here, God, for your sake. I mean, we're trying, to, we're trying to be faithful to you. We're bearing your name. We're representing you in the, this wicked world, and we're getting cut down. We're getting mowed down. God, how are you letting this happen? God, what are you going to do about it? Verse 37 begins, no. No, no what? No, believer, we are not cannon fodder. No, Christians, we are not target practice for terrorists. We're not sitting ducks. We're not fish in a barrel. We are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not, we're not defeated just because Christianity is on the, in the decline in North America. We're not the losers because anti-Christian forces are on the rise. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And how did he love us? I mean, folks, how did he love us? By first embodying Psalm 44, 22. What do I mean by that? For our sake, he was killed. He was counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Jesus was the lamb who was slain. He walked this path first, and he walked it for you and me. Now you're like, well, okay, but that doesn't, I'm not sure if that's encouraging. (laughs) So we're with Christ, and we're suffering with Christ before glory. We're suffering now before the glory that is to come. And remember, Jesus' death, was how he rose again. Jesus' death was how he won the victory. Jesus' death was how he brought you and me into God's family. Jesus' death is how he will bring us one day to glory. This is how martyrs become conquerors through him who loved us. Please note, Paul does not say, We are, no, we're not sheep to be slaughtered. We are more than conquerors. So if they try to use a sword on you, draw yours first. Give them a taste of their own blood. He does not envision a Christian counterattack. He simply says, don't worry. They may destroy you, but they'll never defeat you. They may kill you, but they can't take your life. They may take all that you have, but they can never take away what God promises to give. That's what he says. No, listen, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That's a huge phrase. No, in all these things. He doesn't say, hey, just, let's just have a conqueror mindset. Just tell yourself, I am a conqueror, and, man, and they can't touch you. No, in all these things, in tribulation, we are more than conquerors. In distress, we are more than conquerors. In persecution, we are more than conquerors. In famine, in nakedness, in peril, danger, sword, we are more than conquerors. In all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul is preparing us for present suffering, but he's also preparing us for future glory. He's showing us that that Anything that happens to you cannot, will not thwart God's purpose. If it sounds, I don't know how else to say it. This is not a determinism that reduces you to a mere pawn on God's chessboard. It is God's got a plan that he is going to work out. He is the place that he says he's going to get you. He's going to get you there. And you can rest in that. You can trust in that. You can hope in that. And this just flows right into these final verses, 38, 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last part, who can be against us? 
No one can cut us off from God's love since in Christ He has claimed us. You know what, you know what separation anxiety is, right? Uh, <laughs> Michelle's nodding. So, you, you know, you take, you're taking your kids to the nursery and, uh, and the, 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 the little face scrunches up. What are you doing to me? And they'll start to quit quivering, arms reaching out. No, no, you can't. I don't want to be separated from you. Mom, mom, dad, you you are my life, my joy. Everything good comes from you. I can't bear it without you. Now, now it is true, uh, getting away from the analogy here, it's true that you and I cannot do anything apart from God. We cannot bear it without God. Absolutely. So, you can understand some separation anxiety. What can separate us from the love of God? All these things, and he's just leaving me here in this mess, in this scary place. He's leaving us here. You can't live without the love of the Father, the support of the Son, the help of the Spirit. Here's the thing. Nothing can separate you from his love. And one day, We will enjoy his presence like never before, never to be parted again. But here's what you need to know now. Here's what you need to know now in this present suffering in order to be, in the words of verse 38, to be sure, to be sure of his love. When it feels like he's leaving you behind, he's left you hanging. We're getting cut down out here. We're we're, we're getting slaughtered. He's already claimed you. Remember we talked about this last week? He's adopted you. He's redeemed you. Both of those words have to do with God's, God's got a claim on you. He's taken you to be his own, to, be, to belong to him, to be a part of his family. And someday, we said, gotcha day, the day that adoption is complete, someday gotcha day is going to ha- come when, when he's going to take you to be with him in every way. So, today, today you don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of the devil or any other spiritual forces or powers here. When it talks about powers and rulers and authorities, that could be, that could be the, the kind of governmental powers that we see in various places in our world. That could be the powers and authorities of the elite, the people who are running the, all the big corporations and all the big institutions. It could be the spiritual powers. It, it does refer to the spiritual powers that we can't see that are also at work in this world. Why, why is this such a mess? I mean, there's bigger things going on. Sometimes, don't you see that? You watch the news. Like, this is not, this doesn't make any sense. There is, there is stuff going on. But here's the thing. None of that could, could destroy you, but it, it won't defeat you. Could kill you, but it won't take your life. I don't know what you're, what you're most afraid of. What most makes you feel like, is God out there? Does he still care? Is he, still, is he going to fulfill his plan and purpose? I'm not sure if you're, you're afraid of, of what's going on right now or afraid of the future. Like, what, today's bad. What's going to happen next, right? If you're concerned for the future of Mount Morris or the concern for the future of the United States of America or the West or the earth, you're looking at falling birth rates and climate change and national debt and big tech and China and Russia. And I, I don't know what troubles you most about today or the next big scary thing. But hear me, I, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with the world or there's nothing to worry about. There's plenty. Uh, what I'm saying is whether, whether or not we are about to enter a recession or a boom, persecution or revival, I, I honestly think any of those things could could happen. But here's the thing. 
doesn't matter if it's going to get worse tomorrow because of what it says here. It's been true ever since Paul wrote it, and it will be true until the end of human history. If the worst happens, it does not mean that God has stopped loving you. And you might think, well, okay, but it's really hard, and we're getting, we're getting kicked around, and just that God's up there somewhere loving me, uh, warm, fuzzy feelings, that's, that's not helping. Do you need to understand God's love that, is not, that we are not separated from? That God's, God's love is a very real and tangible and practical reality in your life. It took on very real and practical and physical form when Jesus came to earth. It took, God's love took real tangible forms. People could see it with their eyes as Jesus hung on the cross. God's love is a real thing. And it will be a real thing that we see and touch and feel and taste in the new heavens and the new earth. His love is real and tangible, and it is working out even in all things that he is working out together for good right now in the midst of suffering. The love of God in Christ is more than a feeling. He's proved it again and again. He did not spare his own son. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He will keep his word. He will keep his promise to bless. He will fulfill his purpose to which he has predestined us. And what is that end? It is to be like Christ in glory. If God is for us, is God for us? Yeah. Yeah. Then who can be against us? No one. No one. No one to condemn. No one who can conquer. No one who can cut us off from the love of God that we have in Christ. So, Return again and again to this word because the clearer you are on all the ways that God is for you, the more confident you will be when everything seems against you. That's what this is for you. Let's pray. Lord, as as much as I love, believe and love this word that that we've been going over, I know it it also can land on us like, oh, God, we need the same spirit that breathed out these words for this page to breathe into us, into our lives, the very hope and confidence that this word is intended for us. We can't lose if we have you. Lord, I pray these words would just, you, you would just keep bringing them to mind. If God, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can separate us? No one, no one, no one. Thank you for being the God who takes us, who is, who is willing to suffer, willing to pay the price, and God help us as we may pay something of a price in anticipation 
of the eternal gain that you promise us, that you are for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing with that confidence together as we close.